This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. I'm the host, David Intracasso. During this podcast, we'll discuss integrating behavioral health in the primary care practice setting. With me to discuss the topic is Kent Corso, a licensed clinical health psychologist and board-certified behavior analyst, and the co-author of the 2016 book, Integrating Behavioral Health into the Medical Home, a Rapid Implementation Guide. Uh, Kent, welcome to the program. Thank you, David. I'm very pleased to be here. Kent's bio is, of course, posted on the podcast uh, website. On background, over 13 years ago, the World Health Organization declared mental health illness to be nothing uh, less than a global threat. It estimated that the worldwide prevalence of mental illness exceeds that of other highly prevalent and debilitating conditions, including cardiovascular disease, cancer, and diabetes. In developed countries, mental illness accounts for 23% of the overall burden of disease and causes more morbidity, suffering, and disability than do other serious conditions. In the U.S., according to the National Alliance of Mental Illness, approximately one in five adult Americans experience mental or behavioral health illness in any one year. A disproportionate percent, not surprisingly, are homeless or incarcerated. Just 40% of these individuals actually receive treatment and African-Americans and Hispanic whites are half as likely to receive treatment as non-Hispanic whites. Of those that do receive treatment, more than half are seen by primary care physicians more than any other setting. For a third of these patients, the PCP is their only provider. When PCPs try to refer patients, studies show two-thirds cannot obtain outpatient services for them, a failure rate that is at least two times the rate of other referral services. Passage of the 96 Mental Health Parity Act, the 08 Mental Health Parity and Addiction Equity Act, and passage of the 2010 Affordable Care Act have all helped integrate physical and mental behavioral health services. However, the latter remain woefully or substantively underdiagnosed and treated. With me again to discuss integrated behavioral health and primary care is Kent Corso. So, Kent, sorry that's a little longer than I had hoped as a background or intro. So let me start with the basic question, just so we're on the same page. Uh, can you explain or define the difference between or distinguish between mental and behavioral health? Absolutely. That's a good question and something that's commonly misunderstood. Mental health would refer specifically to diagnoses or conditions that you'd find in the DSM, uh, the Diagnosis and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. This is what uh, we typically think of when we're discussing anxiety, depression, and even severe and persistent mental illness, things like schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. Uh, By contrast, behavioral health involves all of those conditions, but the application of behavioral principles to health care. Sometimes that's called behavioral medicine. That is, any ways in which habits, behaviors, choices, culture lifestyle, any ways in which those factors can either improve health or make health worse, we'd call that behavioral medicine. And so behavioral health encompasses both facets, the behavioral medicine part and the mental health part. 
Great. And sometimes, the, I'm, I'm sorry, sorry, David. And oh, environmental factors. Yes, and sometimes the environmental factors are, are lumped in with the social determinants of health as well. Okay, thank you. So, um, go ahead. So when we say environmental factors, we're really talking about culture. The, the food I put on my table is related to the environment I live in, the family I come from, things like that. That's why it, it relates to behaviors. Okay, thank you. Uh, next, since my last interview concerned in part how international medical graduates contribute to reducing the shortage of physicians in this country, let me ask uh, you, I, I did suggest this in the opening, how severe is the shortage of behavioral health professionals in the U.S.? So I wouldn't say there is a shortage of behavioral health professionals within the U.S. There's certainly a bottleneck, which means that um, there are way more patients than providers, but it's, it's more of an issue of where those providers are practicing. Imagine for a moment if we allowed patients to directly go to specialists like cardiologists or uh, let's say cardiology. If, if every time a patient had a heart palpitation, they went to a cardiologist, there would be an enormous bottleneck, not because there are not enough cardiologists, but because we're not delivering that treatment upstream and triaging it so that all patients have uh, quick access or easy access to a basic level of primary care. That is to say that we've never really had a well-established, highly developed primary level of behavioral health care. It's this sort of old paradigm uh, that, that still is with us, that mental health is separate from behavioral health. And even though for the last 40 to 50 years we've known that that's not the case, we've learned uh, that mind and body are closely connected, that doesn't mean our system has caught up with that and provided a uh, widely accessible primary level of behavioral health care. Okay, so uh, more accurately, it's, it's a, when you say bottleneck, it's a distribution of where we find these uh, trained professionals. Yes, it's a dis- it's, it's exactly. It's a misallocation of where we have them practice. And by having them practice in specialty or siloed settings versus integrated into primary care, they're just not accessible. And nor, nor are they trained to uh, really triage some of those minor conditions, nor are they triaged to do the prevention and outreach, to really work upstream uh, and decrease the number of patients who will develop a severe problem. Okay, thank you again. You, you answered or anticipated my uh, next question. In your book, which we'll get to next, uh, you cited George Engel's 77 Science article that id the problem, again, that the dominant model of disease is biomedical, leaving no room for psychological, behavioral, etc., and my question was going to be, how much progress have we made since then in, in making room? You suggested, although we've been aware, you would say over the last 40 or 50 years, our progress has been limited, correct? It's been limited. I think there's a very common understanding that the mind and body are connected, but how a medical provider takes that knowledge and imparts treatment uniquely based upon that knowledge, that's where we fall short. Uh, which is exactly why integrating behavioral health can be so helpful, because while the uh, physicians or NPs or PAs, all those medical providers, PCPs, are really covering the biological side well, and some are, are really addressing psychosocial issues well, bringing a behavioral health provider into the primary care clinic 
enables a much richer integration and more effective integration of bio, psycho, and social factors. And we'll get to, I do have a question about improved effectiveness in the primary care setting with this integration. So let's go to your book. Again, Integrating Behavioral Health into the Medical Home, subtitled A Rapid Implementation Guide. So this is a primer on how to operationalize or implement what you abbreviate as IBH, Integrated Behavioral Health, in the practice setting, specifically the medical home. So these are this new model, relatively new model, though it's been around forever in pediatrics, and that is PCMH, Primary Care Medical Homes. So recognizing your work is 12 chapters. Um, let's start by broad brush. Um, what are the, or how can you summarize the, say, more important facets of how to successfully or rapidly uh, implement uh, IBH? At the highest level, David, I would say that it is deceiving. It is, it is elusive. It seems to be as simple as taking a mental health provider or someone who is a, has behavioral health experience as well, that is a behavioral medicine experience, and simply plugging them into primary care. Mm-hmm. The reason it's not that simple is because there are cultural differences when you take specialists and have them practicing among generalists in a primary care delivery system. There are differences in documentation. There are differences in which billing codes will likely be paid and which billing codes to use for, for a more primary level of delivering care. So because of all of these differences that are in the details of coding and billing, but also more macro differences in culture and team-based care versus specialty care, which is often solo, uh, not that there aren't group practices, but it's, it's often solo providers delivering the care. Because of all those differences, it can be very deceiving. And so I guess at the highest level, I would say, if it seems simple, we need to be looking a lot closer to see where the pitfalls are. Okay, so as you said, and it's not plug and play, uh, sadly. So I thought of several ways to how to frame uh, a more detailed question, and, and this is a somewhat formula, uh, not very creative, but I'm the primary care physician. Uh, I, I know of your work in my community. I, I understand you are um, very competent. I invite you to whatever, my office lunch, and I say to you, Kent, how could you, could you step this out for me? You, your answer that you just uh, offered was more sort of barriers, but let's go through or if you could identify for me, again, top of line, some of the steps of, of actually how to do this. Great. So the, the first step is, why do you want integrated behavioral health? In other words, what's your need for this? Is it, uh, if it's part of meeting the quadruple aim, then you're in perfect shape because earlier intervention, earlier identification, whether we're talking about screening or brief treatment, will uh, improve health it is oftentimes more well-received than a highly intensive specialized treatment, and I mean uh, better received from the patients. And uh, in terms of provider burnout or attrition among the PCPs, it is uh, helpful to that because part of the role of the integrated behavioral health provider is to decrease the burden that the PCPs have. So why do you want to integrate behavioral health? If it's partly to meet the quadruple aim, then it's a good choice. If it's to deliver higher quality care, it's also a good choice. If it is to address needs that aren't being addressed, 
as you said earlier, between one and two-thirds of patients referred from primary care to specialty mental health, they never make their first appointment. So even if it's just to capture the patients out there who have the needs and those needs are going untreated, that's a good reason as well. At the end of the day, uh, one of the things I'm often asked is, how are we going to pay for this? And my response is that we're already paying for it. We're paying for it in hospital readmissions, uh, high usage of ER and ED, I'm sorry, uh, ED being emergency department and urgent care, So, and, and in treatment non-adherence. So all of these things that are making healthcare suboptimal relate to behaviors. It's really hard to name anything within health and healthcare that doesn't involve behavior. Absolutely. So at, at, yeah, so, so whether it's taking my medicine, whether it's what I cook for dinner for, my, for me and my family, whether it's uh, making an appointment as soon as I have symptoms or monitoring and making it when the symptoms get worse, all of those are, are decisions and behaviors. And so that's the value that integrating behavioral health adds. Thank you. So uh, as you say, there are no, as we know, there are no unpaid uh, costs. They may get externalized, but they're born somewhere. Let me, let me, right. you, you do mention specifically, uh, and I won't get into the whole NCQA world, but you do mention specifically, it's in your title, the medical home. Again, this is a model, uh, to, tr- uh, you know, the phrasing, uh, is, uh, more population, uh, health focus, more whole person care, et cetera. But specifically, why does this resonate or, or, or should resonate? for those working this model, and let's just leaving aside the fact that it helps them, their credentialing, et cetera, but how does it resonate, particularly in the primary care medical home model? So you're, uh, are you asking how do primary uh, PCMH staff, how does it resonate with them in general? Yes, exactly. They tend to love it. Uh, working in several different private and public systems, uh, I have found that if you put the model in place, and, and the key is that it's working properly and effectively. They will literally riot if you try to pull the funding or pull the uh, personnel away from them because they learn to rely on it just as they rely on the lab, just as they rely on radiology. It becomes a, in many cases, we function as physician extenders to uh, assist them in either giving more information, more assessments, uh, more clarity around mental health diagnoses, or just helping to deliver a more well-rounded, holistic form of care. So they tend to love it. I will say that where one of the biggest struggles are is understanding how to use it. And so helping nurses and doctors change their habits around practicing, just as they have had to change their habits with the inception of PCMH and have had to learn to shift some of the hierarchies to more team-based models, uh, there are certainly some, some growing pains that are involved there. Let me try to extend this. So resonates, uh, you know, it's, you remind me of how did I live without this, right? Right, After you get it. Um, so again, PCMH uh, for various, under certainly Medicare, commercial pairs as well. Uh, there's a, a great interest. What other models... Uh, of care, do you see this or interest or adoption thereof? Uh, IBH and I, I mentioned uh, under Medicare, there is now accountable care organizations. There's there's something called comprehensive primary care models or demos. 
I'm assuming these are equally relevant or of interest to those as well? They are. I think the payment vehicles tend to be one of the biggest obstacles, but they are relevant to those. Uh, another place where it's relevant, if we look outside of not only PCMH, but primary care as a whole, uh, integrating a behavioral health person into specialty clinics such as uh, endocrinology, pain clinics, sleep clinics, some of the most effective components of treatments for things like diabetes, for chronic pain, for uh, certainly insomnia, involve repatterning behaviors and routines and things like that. So to integrate into those settings, a behavioral medicine person into those specialty clinics, for example, are incredibly helpful. Okay, thank you. Let's go to your work concludes, Section 3, Case Studies. Uh, you provide six examples. This is this is really the payoff or the meat, uh, and I'm sure you uh, chose these intentionally. Uh, I'll I'll note three. This is Medicaid. This is the Colorado Access example you give. You also give to a large system in Utah, Intermountain Health, which is statewide, and then a large commercial plan, Aetna. But between and amongst these and the others, what kind of outcomes? Uh, are you seeing both on the just in, in healthcare quality and uh, delivery outcomes, and also, of course, we have to discuss, as we say, uh, uh, reducing uh, or modifying the spending curve. So, uh, in order to answer that, one caveat is that it depends on it, some of the outcomes, whether they're financial or whether they're in terms of health outcomes are directly dependent on the types of integrated behavioral health models that have been used. There was a study done, it was published by RAND in 2014, looking at the 56 or so uh, federal grants for FQHCs to do integrated behavioral health. And some of the results of this study or of this initiative, all these grants, the results were not great, and one of the reasons that they were not great, according to Rand, had to do with the standardization of what people were doing. So when we say we're integrating behavioral health, what exactly does that mean in terms of clinical behaviors, service delivery, workflow? And what it all comes down to, David, is model fidelity. If I, if you tell me do CPR and I just bang on someone's chest and blow in their mouth, that's not high model fidelity. So I shouldn't expect to get whatever the results are, whatever the sort of uh, proven outcomes are that I can get with CPR. So when we look at systems, we selected systems that were pretty clear about how they were going about integrating behavioral health, meaning they were using some of the formal models that are reliable. Uh, what is not helpful is to advise organizations to launch integrated behavioral health and, and encourage them to just improvise. They, they will take too long to get results, and they will likely lose money, and personnel are struggling through all the throes of, of getting there. Um, just in terms of some outcomes, uh, the Colorado Access one, uh, after at least one integrated behavioral health visit, 28% decrease in medical use for Medicaid patients, 20% decrease in medical use for commercially insured patients, 27% decrease in outpatient psychiatry visits, 34% decrease in outpatient psychotherapy visits. 
Now, those last two statistics, decrease in outpatient psychiatry and psychotherapy visits, the reasons why those are important is that because it means we're delivering care earlier upstream. Typically, the types of coding being used are different codes that cost less. So if you're looking at a larger system perspective, it's costing less to deliver care. And so uh, certainly that means we are controlling the flow. Your, your first question about sort of where we allocate care, is it in a specialty setting or primary care setting, that uh, example from, from Colorado Access is evidence of of the um, controlling the flow. And actually, I'm sorry, that's Cherokee Systems, not, not Colorado Access. Okay. Um, Colorado Access was really focused around cost. So a few uh, numbers to share is that uh, there were savings of $170 per member per month or a little over 2000 per year per member per month to uh, a 12.9% reduction in costs for a cohort of patients which were high cost and high risk. Now, the, the time for this was a 12-month sort of uh, pre-measure of the metrics and then the uh, program and then measuring up to 24 months post-visit. So we're looking at probably a one- to three-year time span to get those kinds of results. Mm-hmm. Okay, thank you. We, we have the one payer in here. Uh, Intermountain's uh, integrated uh, system. Do you have off uh, in your notes or off the top of your head, I'm interested in the payer, uh, the examples Aetna here, what were they able to drive? Did you ask what was Aetna able to accomplish? Yes, Aetna, correct. So they, of all of the examples we we listed in the book, Aetna had a fairly comprehensive model, and and so I think it's not surprising that that what I'm about to list are some of their uh, healthcare cost reductions. So uh, decrease in emergency department use by 39 percent, decrease in inpatient care by 30 percent, 47 percent decrease in outpatient visits, three percent decrease in psychiatric visits and a 290% increase in psychotherapy visits. Uh, net total cost savings was 39%, and so certainly I think it was probably a costly initiative, but if the net savings is 39%, that's helpful. Not all of these can say, okay, we generated revenue. It's not a direct ge- uh, revenue-generating process. Oftentimes, it's cost offset or cost savings. And sometimes we do see direct revenue, but we didn't uh, include any of those in the book. That's not typically what, what our the larger healthcare system is, is interested in doing. It's more about cost reduction and, and offset. So these are substantial percents. These are substantial savings. I, you know, you, you gave sort of the numerator results. Uh, so if you're saving 2000 per year per patient, uh, I'd have to think that's approximately a 20-plus percent annual savings, which is, needless to say, substantial. I do have uh, time for it, and I'll, I, will, I do want to throw this question in, somewhat out of order here. But sadly, mental behavioral diagnoses are st- still accompanied by stigma, or they're stigmatized, um, which, of course, inhibits uh, individuals seeking treatment or being diagnosed and then following up in getting care. Is there an effect... In, in, in reducing that stigma when uh, there's an integrate, there's an IBH in the primary care setting uh, in some way, I would think intuitively there might be, but you know this is a huge barrier in all of this, and we tend not to give it, I think, the appropriate 
uh, recognition, again, this being uh, there's substantial uh, stigma with these illnesses. There is a, a, a substantial reduction in stigma, and it's multifaceted. So there's actually a manuscript or an article that just came out about this looking at patients' preferences to go to a specialty mental health setting or to be seen within primary care. And when you just compare the numbers, people are more inclined to go into a primary care setting. The Partly because you're sitting in the same waiting room. Uh, no one knows what doctor you're going back there to see or what type of provider. Uh, it normalizes mental health and behavioral health because it's delivered in the same place that the rest of your primary care is delivered. So all of those things are very nice for the patient experience and, and, and sort of uh, allows them to feel more comfortable seeking that sort of help. On top of that, if they are identified in the clinic during another uh, appointment with their PCP, there's often a relationship that they have formed with their PCP, hopefully. And so if the PCP says, you know, Dr. Corso is right next door or two rooms down, I'd love to just walk you in and have him do a brief assessment and give me some recommendations so that together we can take care of you as best we can. It's really hard for patients to say no to that. It's also... Uh, not very stigmatizing to have your physician say, I'd like to deliver better care to you. And finally, by by a, a mental health or behavioral health provider being integrated into primary care, nurses and doctors and, and other clinical staff, they've got their own biases and stigma too. Uh, they're subject to the same social um, biases or trends or prejudices that, that uh, patients are. And so what that means is when we are integrated with them, we're able to correct some misperceptions to decrease their stigma, increase their understanding of what this is all about. So when we really put this in, in the context of a medical model and getting my depressive symptoms is really no different, getting that treated is really no different than getting my headache symptoms treated, it's so much more palatable for everyone. Yes, makes perfect sense. Thank you, Ken, again, his volume Integrating Behavioral Health into the Medical Home, a Rapid Implementation Guide. Very helpful uh, volume. I'll have to say, uh, sorry we're at our time, but Ken, I do genuinely appreciate this overview, and we'll have to find time in the future to talk further. Uh, many facets to this subject, and again, uh, diagnoses that are woefully uh, undertreated. So with that, thank you again, Ken. You're welcome. Thanks so much for having me, David. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archived program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.